Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So our, um, well, let me say this before we get started. Uh, it's been almost seven years since we've done a sermon series on our mission, vision, and values as a church. And so many of you were not here when we did that the last time. I think it was in 2015, actually, or 2016. It feels like a good time for a refresh. And so over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. Is we're, going to, we're actually laying down some material in the sermons that will become part of the curriculum of our membership class moving forward. And kind of the idea is to take scriptures that have most shaped what Redeemer is and is seeking to be. And to, uh, and to use those scriptures that are foundational to our church that correspond to the three different core principles of our vision. And so here they are, and I'll say them over and over again in the years to come, but Redeemer really is aspiring to be a people who are first fluent in the gospel. So you see that gospel fluency there? So who are fluent in the gospel and for the city. And because we're fluent in the gospel and for the city, we, are, we, we pray that God would use us to ignite and then cultivate a movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven and all of Polk County. That's kind of what we feel like we're here for. And so for the next number of weeks, our topic is going to be the gospel. We're going to be talking about the gospel. And our text for this morning, which is one of the foundational texts that really the ministry of this church is built on, is from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there... Feel free to. If not, don't worry. It's on the screen behind me. Uh, if you're at home and watching, it should be on the screen where you are as well. It's printed for you in your worship folder, and so you should have no problem getting your eyes on the text as we read it together from some one of those places. And so let's, let's read together just these two short verses. Again, very, very important, very foundational to uh, what our church is and, and is aspiring to be. Let's read. Paul writes to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Perhaps the most succinct summary of the gospel in all of the scriptures here in these two verses And so this morning, our topic is just this. We want to explicitly ask the question, what is the gospel? Now, we're going to be talking about the gospel for the next number of weeks, but in truth, our goal is to preach the gospel every Sunday, like Luther, like I told you at the beginning. But this morning, we ask explicitly, what is the gospel? And so let me ask you, what is the gospel? What is your elevator pitch? Because you should have one, where you would explain in just a few minutes to someone what the gospel is, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, if I told you that Christianity was good news, now we don't typically think of religion as being good news, but Christianity is, and I'd like to show you that this morning, but if it is, what would be the best news? What would be good news to you in considering believing? Because that is what we're seeking to understand this morning. Now, this text in Romans 1, Martin Luther in 1515 began lecturing from the book of Romans in Wittenberg, And it was his study as he came to the first chapter of Romans, these few verses, as he studied them, because he hated them, he said. And so as he studied them, trying to figure out what God was revealing and talking about here, he began to come to understand what exactly Paul was saying here. And as he did, it changed his life. And as his life changed, of course, that change sparked the Protestant Reformation through a rediscovery of the gospel of grace. So it's a great place for us to start here in this text. And here's what we're going to see. Gosh, there's so many things. I really had to whittle this down. But I want you to see, as we talk about the gospel this morning, that there is a definition. And then there's a glossary of gospel terms that were given. And there's a promise. 
but I didn't want to make it a four-point sermon, so then there's an application, but the application is really the fourth point, okay? So there is a definition and a glossary and a promise, and at the end we'll make a specific application. And so let's walk through the text together along those headings. Okay, first, let's, let's again, we, we've come this morning to define what we mean by the gospel, and so let's offer a definition. And the word gospel means good news. Good news. Think about that phrase, good news. It is good. It is good, and therefore not relativism, because relativism says there are no rules, there is no good, there is no right and wrong, no good and bad, there is no moral accountability, you live and you die and that's it, maybe there's a God, probably not, but if so, then he likely doesn't really care how you live your life, just as long as you're sincere, be true to yourself, and don't worry about the rest, but the gospel is not just good, it's good news, and if it's news, then it's not moralism either. And moralism says if you, you have to follow the rules, then if you do it, if you do it well enough, then maybe God will love and accept you. It isn't good advice about what you should do for God. The gospel is good news about what God has done for you in Jesus. In the Galatians text we read earlier, Paul compares relativism and moralism, and then he contrasts them both with the gospel. If you look back in your worship folder to Galatians 5, 6, it says, In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And uncircumcision there is a technical word that Paul uses to refer to the Gentiles, to pagans, to people who don't believe in God. Today we would say it's a typical secular, you know, irreligious materialist. Circumcision is also a technical word. It refers to a religious person. And when I say religious, I mean somebody who would say that faith is not enough. You have to believe and then whatever rules you add to that. So you have to believe and then you have to be circumcised. Or you have to believe and then you have to be baptized into our particular church. Or you have to follow these rules in order to become a Christian. Now the Apostle Paul says that the two different approaches are actually the same. That's what's interesting. He says those two things are really a whole lot more alike than they are different. And neither count for anything spiritually. An irreligious person, in other words, is obviously not a Christian, but neither is a religious person by that definition. And what's fascinating about what Paul does is he says religion is actually closer to irreligion than it is to Christianity. I want you to hear that. Religion, as I just defined it anyway, is actually closer to irreligion. It has more in common with irreligion than it does with Christianity. That's what Paul is meaning in that verse. Uh, in Robert Louis Stevenson's famous book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you haven't read that in a while, maybe since high school English, you really ought to read it again. It probably means something different to you as an adult than it, would, than it did when you were in ninth grade or whenever you read it, if you even did. But what, what happens, the story is about a man who tries to separate the bad parts of his personality from the good by creating an alter ego named Mr. Hyde that is activated when he drinks a potion, but eventually, as the story goes on, what happens is he loses control of Hyde, uh, and Hyde actually murders someone, and so he is very remorseful, and he, he says, you know what, I've got to get control of this, so he buckles down, and he resolves to never take the potion again. He devotes himself to charity and to good works to make up for all the bad that he's done, but it's not too long before he starts to feel really proud of all the good he's doing. And then there's this scene where he's one day sitting in a, park, in a park on a park bench and he's people watching. And what happens to him is he begins to think about how much better he is than all the other people that are in the park. How much more good he's done than they have. And 
how much more virtuous he is than all of them. And as he begins to soar with self-righteousness sitting on the park bench, he looks down and he realizes he's changed into Hyde without even taking the potion. Jesus told a story to illustrate the same thing. He said there was a father with two young sons and the youngest was a bad kid. Disrespectful, immoral. He asked for his inheritance early and then wasted it on prostitutes and parties. And when he came to his senses, he headed home expecting to be shunned, but was instead met by his father and showered with love and affection. And the older son was a good kid. He always did the right thing. He obeyed his father and took care of the family. And every, he did everything right. But when his younger brother came home, he didn't rejoice. <laughs> he saw his father's generosity to the prodigal, and he became resentful and mean. And the point of the story is that there are two ways to be lost. It's the point of Stevenson's book, too. There are two ways to be lost. Two ways. This is huge. Sin is a desire to keep God out of your life, to keep yourself and not God in control of your life. And you can do that through one of two strategies. You can do it by, first, by breaking all the rules. You can also do it by carefully obeying them all. The younger brother and the older brother were the same. That's the point of Jesus' story. They were both lost. They both thought that their performance was what mattered. And And the younger brother had just done it badly, and so he felt badly, and the older brother had done it well, and so he felt pretty good about himself. See, that's the point. The younger brother thought that he was beyond the reach of his father's grace because he'd been bad, but the older brother thought that he was beyond the need of his father's grace because he had been good, and both are far from the Father's heart. Neither of them are true of what Paul calls the gospel here. The gospel is the good news that salvation depends on what God has done in Jesus Christ and not what you have done, good or bad. It's pure grace. It's from God towards you, not from you towards God. That's the message of Christianity. And that's what we mean by the gospel. Now, secondly... To flesh this out a little bit, there's also a glossary that we're given here. Now, we've, if you see the slide again, gospel fluency, I'll say more about that in the coming weeks, but whenever you begin to learn a new language, before you try to make sense of grammar and syntax in these things, usually the first thing you do is work on vocabulary. Okay, so when you go to seminary and you're learning Greek so you can read the New Testament, the first thing before you learn all the prepositions and the verbs and, and all that kind of stuff, you just get note cards and you just start to memorize as many of the vocabulary words as possible. Okay, you have to know the words before you can conjugate them properly and put them into sentences. And so there are a few words uh, that we need to be familiar with in the text, and we'll just see how far we can get into this because of time, but let's, let's do it together. First, I want you to see that one of the most important words here is it talks about righteousness. So look there in verses 16 and 17 again. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and then he goes on in verse 17, for in it is revealed the righteousness of God. And so the gospel is a revelation of whatever we mean by this word righteousness. It is good news that you can be right with God despite your sins and moral failings. That's the good news, that there's a way for you to be right with God. Now that good news presumes bad news, and the bad news is that we are, in fact, out of sorts with our maker. If a fish is made for water, and if a bird was made for the air, we were made to walk and talk with God completely naked before him and one another without fear or shame. Can you imagine that? 
I mean, that is, that is the air. That is the water that we were made for, to walk and talk with God completely naked before him and one another without fear and shame. But the biblical story of humanity is that by seeking our own happiness apart from God, what we mean by sin, we have lost this original righteousness. We no longer enjoy the kind of communion with God that we've been made for. Instead, we experience alienation. And from modern psychology, we know that if a child experiences alienation in their relationship with their parents, particularly if they're very young, if there is not the proper attachment and attunement that's supposed to take place between a parent and a child, then problems begin to show up in all the other areas of their lives. All the other parts of the child's life are affected, or they go subterranean, but eventually they make themselves known. Now, it's the same thing here. Because of sin, we do not have the rightness with God that we are made for, that we need. It's like the air we breathe. It's like the sunshine and the rain that makes our hearts and our souls grow. We need it and we don't have it because we have been alienated from him. And the result is that all the other parts of life start to go wrong too. We experience emotional and psychological alienation, which results in a lack of emotional health. We become easily alienated from one another and get sideways with one another and are constantly navigating through difficult relationships and it all traces back to the loss of rightness with God. That's what Christianity claims, okay? Now think about that again. We were made to walk and talk with God completely naked before him and one another without any embarrassment or fear, but in the place of that serenity, we now live with what the Bible describes as a condemning heart. We live with this deep sense of shame and condemnation that just envelops our entire life. This inner voice that is that won't shut up, that is constantly pointing out just how wrong we are and all the things that we're doing wrong and ah, ah, it just drones on and on. It's the conscience that screams at us, that is screaming at us all the time that God is there and he's holy, and we owe him everything, and we've not lived up to the standard, and we've offended him, we need a righteousness. Every one of us does. And I remember when this really came home to me. My daughter, Abby, she's 18, guys. It is crazy. She's graduating this year, and it's hard to believe. It feels like yesterday that she was a little girl. And when she was little, she was really quite precocious precocious. She was so dramatic. She had these big eyes and she's everything. And I've learned uh, parenting boys is not the same thing as parenting girls. And so one night I was putting her to bed and I, you know, I told her, go to sleep. I love you. And as I'm walking out the door, daddy, she interrupted me, daddy, why do you love me? Now you need to understand at this point, I was still figuring out how to be a dad to a little girl. My two older kids were boys. They didn't ask those kinds of questions, okay? So it's different with girls. She's 18. I'm still trying to figure it out. So stupid me, I said, oh, Abby, there are so many reasons. I can't possibly tell you them all, thinking that that would get me out the door to whatever I was going to next. Oh, oh no. Daddy, you have to tell me them all. I need to know them all. (laughs) Because her little girl heart was looking for her righteousness. And that's you and me. It's not just her. It's you and me. It was just right there for all to see with her. But So what do you do? 
when your heart is condemning and telling you that you don't have the kind of the righteousness that you need? Well, most people deal with it by trying to earn a certain moral record or status, by being good, or at least by being better than everybody else. And this, by the way, is the path of all the other world religions. They all say basically the same thing, that the righteousness that you need has to come from you. You do it, and then you give it to God as a gift, right? So it's from you to God. It's a proof of your love and devotion, but here's the problem. That, that really never works. Stanley Vogue, he likened it to children trying to build a sandcastle on the beach before an incoming tide. And I remember, I grew up in Florida, I remember taking it as a personal challenge as a kid. Wasn't that one of the most fun parts of going to the beach? Like, we are going to build a sandcastle, build some kind of trench system that, like, dumps out into this thing and walls high enough, and we're going to walk out here tomorrow morning, and it's going to still be here. And it never worked. Because you have to get down in the sand that's wet enough, right, to actually build it. Which is, of course, where the, where the waves come, so it never works. And so Vogue said, there is in all of us a struggle to get and keep our own righteousness. So we go round and round to establish our defenses against the waves of other people's criticisms. And life, as a result, becomes one long struggle to be what we know all too well we're not. Think about that. A struggle to be what we know all too well we're not. Now play that out. What kind of life comes from trying to be or at least to pretend to be what we know we're not. That is no way to live. And Richard Lovelace has made the point that our very best efforts are not enough to quiet our conscience. They do not satisfy that condemning heart. There's always something more, something, you know, something more or something better that we could have done. And so we, in truth, need some other way to get and keep the righteousness, the sense of rightness with God that we need. And that's exactly what Christianity is all about. It is the good news that there is a righteousness that doesn't come from you, but that comes from God to you as a free gift of his grace in Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's the message of Christianity. Which leads to the second word in our gospel glossary, which is faith. Look there again. Not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And so the righteousness we need doesn't come from us, it comes to us. It becomes ours through faith. You get it and you keep it, not by doing, but by believing instead. So Luther, the problem with Luther was he got hung up by the phrase, verse 17, the righteousness of God. And at first he said he hated it because he thought it meant, it, meant, it referred to the perfection that God demands from us because he himself is perfect. And no matter how hard he tried, and believe me, he tried harder than anybody here this morning has ever tried. No matter how hard he tried, he could not ever reach the standard. And so he was full of self-hatred and loathing, and he hated God as a result. But then he realized that, no, this refers to something different. It actually refers to God's own perfection, which he gives as a gift to those who trust in him and not in themselves. And when he came to that realization, the light came on. And everything changed. See, he came to understand that the righteousness we need was... It's what he called an alien righteousness. That is, that it was not from him. It had nothing to do with his goodness or badness. It came from God to him. There's an old Horatio Bonar hymn that says, Upon a, li upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I have not died, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. You hear that? Not me, but Jesus. And so the good news of Christianity is just this. What a privilege to be able to just speak this over you. Maybe for the first time for some of you or the hundredth time for some of you, it still is great news. Here it is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself has come from heaven to earth to live a life of perfect obedience and to die 
as a perfect sacrifice, and it is his death and his life that can make you right with God, not anything that comes from you, not your obedience, not your sacrifices. It's an alien righteousness. It's what God does in Jesus and then gives to you as a gift. Jesus' life of obedience, his death upon a cross, his resurrection, his spirit in you, it's all his work. At the heart of the gospel is an exchange, and nobody said it better than John Stott. He said the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God and putting himself where only God deserves to be in God's place. And so the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man and putting himself where only man deserves to be in man's place. We have all in our sin claimed prerogatives that belong to God alone, but in Jesus, God has accepted the penalties and consequences that are ours. And when you believe, here's what happens. When you believe, all that is yours becomes Christ and all that is his becomes yours. Luther also called it a passive righteousness because he came to understand that the way you get it and keep it is just that. It's by faith. Do you see that phrase, from faith, for faith? The apostle means that you get it by believing and not by doing, and then you keep it by continuing to believe. In other words, it's faith from the beginning and all the way to the end. And here, faith is the opposite of works. It's giving up on yourself and putting all of your hope and trust in Christ instead. So listen to the way Luther put it. He said this, so then... Have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? Have we nothing to do? Here's how he answers that question. No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes not by doing. It comes by doing nothing, by hearing nothing, by knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing only this, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Isn't that great? See, conventional wisdom says your doing is what matters most, but Christianity claims your doing is the problem. Your doing is the thing that's keeping you from God. Your doing is spiritually deadly if you think it's what gets you somewhere in the spiritual life. If you want to get and keep a righteousness, if you want to get and keep a sense of being right with God that can quiet the condemning heart inside of you so that you can live naked before him and others without fear or embarrassment, then what you have to do is you actually have to lay your deadly doing down. That's what the old hymn says, right? Lay it down, down at Jesus' feet, and then only then can you stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. And so that is just a little bit about the gospel glossary, the words righteousness of faith. We need to keep going because third, there's a promise. And what Paul says here that is so amazing is he says it's actually the power of God. This is actually what I just described. The, the, the laying of your doing down, saying, I don't, you know, none of this can come from me. When you get to that place where you stop relying upon yourself and you start despairing of your own efforts and you turn to God instead, that that is actually the place where the power of God comes. You see that in verse 16? That this gospel is the power of God. That when you stop trying to do it all on your own, you actually come into the power of God. Which means there's no real power in relativism or moralism because they only deal with the symptoms and not the actual disease. I mean, name some of the sins that people are guilty of. Not you, of course, other people, because we're way more comfortable doing that, right? Lust, greed, lying. How do you deal with those things? There's an old Bob Newhart skit, maybe you've seen it, where he's playing the role of a therapist. Have you seen this? And he charges $5 for his advice. They come in, this lady comes in, she's afraid of being buried alive in a box, and she's coming in to get help with that, and he says, I charge $5. She's like, why, why, how, why? He's like, because I, 
we'll be done in, we'll be done in two minutes <laughs> and so he says what's your problem she explains it and uh he says five minutes in five minutes we'll be done after five minutes it's free you know just what's your problem so he listens to the lady she shares the problem with 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 him and then he kind of sits up in his chair and he says okay you ready i'm gonna I'm going to fix your problem. Here's, here's the advice. It's always the same. He leans forward and yells at him, stop it. Just stop it. Well, but I got to, no, no, stop it. He just keeps, so the whole skit's him just yelling at this woman over and over again. Stop it. What's your problem? Stop it. You don't want to live that way. Stop it. And then he finally gets so exasperated with her at the end. He says, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. And that, you know. And it's kind of, yeah, and it's really funny. It's really funny, and it's satire, of course, because if you could just stop it, you wouldn't have to go to a therapist. But in order to deal with the sin struggles in your life, that's not enough. It's not good enough advice. You have to not just understand what's going on, right? You have to understand the things underneath it, not just the sin that you might be dealing with, but the sin underneath that sin, the deep why. If you struggle with lying, for example, you could try to bear down and just stop it, but it probably won't work because the real problem is not the lying, it's the why behind the lying. It's the motivational things that are happening in your own heart, right? And that's what you need to, that's what you need to get to, that root of sin, which is, in most cases, in all cases, unbelief. Because for every sin, there is a wrong idea about God that is motivating the wrong behavior. So every behaving problem is a believing problem. We'll come back to that. The sin underneath all the other sins is being ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. So the sin underneath every sin, if you dig down deep enough, what you're going to find is that there's some place where you really are, you're struggling with this concept, this idea of being ashamed of the gospel. You're not trusting in Christ alone. You're not resting in his grace. Instead, you're trying to build your identity on your own performance. You've, you've defaulted into some kind of works righteousness. That is what's happening is when, when that happens in the sinful parts of your life, you're engaging in kind of the system of works righteousness that's creating either pride or fear in your life. And the problem with moralism is that it doesn't take away the pride or the fear. It actually makes them worse. So I've been a part of you know, churches throughout all of my life that actually what they were doing is they were trying to motivate people morally by leveraging their pride and their fear. And that's a big problem because if you believe that the way that you get somewhere spiritually is to be good and then you do it, then it's easy to begin to see yourself not just as good but as better than everybody else. And if you believe that the only way to get God's love and acceptance is to earn it and you keep messing up and you never achieve the standard, then you'll live in perpetual fear. See, we need something that's going to free us from these dynamics. We sin because of pride and fear. If you try to use pride and fear to be obedient, all you're doing is reinforcing the roots of sinful behavior in your life. But the gospel works powerfully. Because it addresses these deeper issues by changing our wrong ideas about God for right ones and by dismantling the pride and the fear that are expressions of the unbelief that's so deep in us. So Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. Cheer up. You're, you're way worse than you think you are. Now, I thought you'd chuckle at that. I mean, yeah. I mean, cheer up. Like, you're a worse sinner than you ever imagined. Look at Jesus dying upon the cross. Your sins did that. That's how awful your sins are. Your problem is you have way too small a view of the actual reality of your sins. How could you ever be proud? 
Look at Christ dying upon the cross bearing your sins. Look at the ugliness of that thing. You did that. But of course, he would go on to say, cheer up. Though you're a worse sinner than you ever imagined, at the same time, you're more loved than you ever dreamed possible. Because look at the cross. Look at him dying upon the cross. You see Jesus dying upon the cross? His love for you did that. How could you ever be afraid? Look at the lengths to which he would go to love you and to take care of you and to meet your most important need. How could you ever be afraid and think that he won't come through for you in all the other parts of your life? You see what grace does? Grace humbles you out of your pride and it secures you, it secures you out of your fear. And by doing so, it breaks the power of sin. And what happens, and this is the record of people all throughout the scripture, Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul the apostle. Martin Luther, the miserable, unhappy monk, counting his beads and fasting for days and plummeling his body in anguish and guilt, that man, through a rediscovery of the gospel of grace, became the free, fierce herald of the Reformation. I wonder what your story is. The gospel is spiritual dynamite. It is the power of God to change any person. No matter how good you are, you are never beyond the need of God's grace. No matter how bad you are, you are never beyond the reach of his grace. There is no person that God cannot save. There is no relationship that he cannot heal. There is no marriage that he cannot salvage. There is nothing that he cannot change. Now, I know, I know, all of those statements contain a double negative, And that's clunky. But I did that on purpose because that is how life feels at times, doesn't it? Just weighed down by the negative realities. But of course, a double negative actually expresses an emphatic positive. And the gospel is an emphatic positive. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And so cynicism, not to mention pride and fear, despair, cynicism, all of these emotional realities... They are contrary to the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Isn't that great? I hope it feels, I hope it lands on your heart as good news this morning. Now, let me just finish because we need to round to a close. Let me make an application here. Paul says that as a result of believing the gospel, one of the things that was going to happen in, in his, that happened in his life that could happen to you too is that you could, because you believe, that you could live unashamed. So look there again. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think that's very timely. That's why I wanted to make mention of this. We... We're still regaining our footing after the past number of years, the pandemic and then the political turmoil that came out of it and then raging inflation and economic uncertainty and all the things that people are dealing with. And the natural tendency at such times is to pull back. And I think, I think we're seeing that in so many places. People are pulling back into what is safe. They're not as concerned about their neighbors across the street. They're living with a lesser capacity for risk. The world is changing so rapidly, so dramatically. It feels like the ground under our feet is shaking. And it's hard to even, we're, we're at a place in our culture where it's hard to even know what to say to people because if you say the wrong thing, you might offend them in some unexpected way. So you don't say anything to people. Right? You, you just, you, it's just not worth it. You pull, so you pull back away from people and play it safe. And this is, this is happening everywhere, and I'm very concerned because there's massive spiritual implications to this. But if you notice verse 16, it begins with a preposition. And the preposition there is for. 
which means that it's a continuation of a thought, so it's probably not good practice to start at verse 16. You need to really understand the verses before, but for the sake of time, that's the way we did it. So we didn't read verse 15, but here's what it says. Paul writes to these Christians in Rome. He said, I'm eager to come to Rome to preach the gospel to you. So Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome because he goes on in verse 16 to say he was not ashamed of the gospel, and that's the application that I'd like to make. This man was eager There was no hesitation. There was no pulling back, even though there was a risk. I mean, preaching the gospel in Rome was not a safe play. It's no different today, you know, but but definitely not back then either. All of us, we have people that we love that are hurting and their life is a mess. And what they need most to hear and to believe the gospel is the gospel. Nothing else is the power of God. And yet... And yet we live in a moment where Patty Lupone goes on The View and says that there's no difference between the Christian right and the Taliban. And the panel nods in agreement and the audience claps their approval. So it makes sense, right, that that we would be a little hesitant with these things. If you believe that Jesus is the one true king of the world, you're dangerous. And if you dare to make that claim publicly, you're a threat and you should be silenced. Our world is very much the same as it was for Paul. And yet he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see the phrase? To the Jew first and then also to the Greek The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One of my kids asked about that this week. What does that mean? They were talking about it in Bible class at school, I think. And um, and here is the way I said it to to her, and I would say to you. That phrase there means that God intended for the gospel to first come to the nation of Israel and then go out to the rest of the world through the nation of Israel. And it's the same with you and me. The gospel is good news, and that good news came to you on its way to somebody else. It came to you, and then God means for it to come to others through you. But here's the thing. Fleming Rutledge said the scandal of the gospel is far more self-evident than its meaning. And I think that's really true. Which means you cannot believe and live out the truth of this good news in this culture without expecting to endure the scandal of it. So here's my question. Are you ready for that? Is the gospel such good news to you if you're here and you're a Christian? Is it such good news to you that, like Paul, you would say, Jesus is the best thing going? Come what may. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Listen to Isaac Watts. This is how he put it. He said, I am not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause, maintain the honor of his word, the glory of his cross. Jesus, my God, I know his name. His name is all my trust. Nor will he put my soul to shame, nor let my soul be lost. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we would confess to you that indeed, indeed, we can allow the weirdness of this cultural moment, the the uncertainty of it, the confusion of it to cause us to pull back in fear, to play it safe. And it is no time, it is no time for those that believe in you to be playing it safe. Now is the time for us uh, to, to go out and be willing to take risks and boldly proclaim with our words and our lives the truth of Jesus' love, of, of your love for us in Jesus. It's what the world so desperately needs to hear. And so would you, would you do a work in us first this morning? Would you cause this, this gospel to be such good news to our hearts? that it would become a work not only that you're doing 
to us, but that it would be a work that you would begin to do through us as you send us out into the world as the messengers, as the gospelizers that you mean for us to be. Humble us out of our pride, secure us out of our fear, embolden us with the truth this morning. Let it be, let it be beauty in our soul. Let it be sweetness in our, in our taste buds. And put a song on our lips, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isn't that great? Don't be afraid. You know why? Because the one who has died in love for you, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he said, he reminded his disciples that he is the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. So the one who loves you now sits in a place of all authority and power over all of the universe. And so we can go without fear, with truly nothing to be afraid of. He can bid our anxious fears goodbye. That's what he does with these words even here. So we, re we receive these words as we go as a promise that we don't go toward his heart. We go from his heart. We don't go to earn his love and acceptance, to earn his favor, to earn his smile. We go having been given his smile in Jesus. It now is over us and we can go without fear. And so go without fear receiving these words. May the Lord may bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go without fear.